Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, US Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And I'm going to start off with a little boxing talk, John. Uh, live boxing returned to ESPN on Tuesday, and in the main event, the outstanding U.S. Olympic silver medalist Shakur Stevenson, from your neck of the woods in Newark, New Jersey, scored a TKO win in the sixth round over Felix Carabayo. The fight was forgettable. The stoppage was unforgettable if you happen to bet the over-under. The line was five and a half rounds. According to the official timekeeper, referee Tony Weeks waved off the fight one minute and 31 seconds into the sixth round, <laughs> meaning that over-betters won by one second and under-betters lost by one second. Not to mention, Weeks appeared to wave the fight off a good three seconds before the timekeeper stopped the clock. Uh, as sports come back, that means bad beats are coming back too. Uh, what would piss you off more, John? Being on the wrong end of this one or having the Patrick Mahomes over rushing yards prop in the Super Bowl and losing because of him running backwards and taking a knee several times? Uh, yeah, well, you know, both of us lost that nice edge in the fourth quarter of that last Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah. You know, I had a Cinderella season over 58% of the regular season. Postseason was 60%. Um, so not uh, having that cover uh, makes me wince, but I didn't have the Mahomes bet in particular. Uh, but I'll take that one, you know, partly because there's no doubt it's a bigger bet, right? I mean, all things are not equal. You're probably betting more on the Super Bowl than on a, on a fight in Newark in June. Um, <laughs> and because that bet had been won, and then it wasn't. So, you know, uh, but as my childhood pal, Mike S, whose full last name will not be revealed uh, for various reasons, um, he always said, you never add it with the over. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, sometimes sometimes you're in it and then you're out of it again with the with the over. But uh, yeah, with the, the boxing one, I guess uh, whew, that, th- these are. These are definitely two strong early contenders for bad beat of the year, both of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, The boxing one is an important reminder that the people in charge of the sports aren't concerned with you, the better. Uh, You know, to the timekeeper and the Nevada Commission, 
They don't care if it goes down as one minute and 28 seconds or one minute and 31 seconds. It's a sixth round TKO. They just need to write a number in the official record. Uh, and the Super Bowl, too. You know, Andy Reid and the Chiefs are, are playing to win, and they don't care about Mahomes' stats or your fantasy team or anything like that. So, so that's a lesson to take out of this. Always bet within your bankroll because bad beats will happen to you on occasion. Yeah. Is that a New Jersey commission? Uh, no, this no. It would the he Shakur Stevenson is from Newark, but the fight uh-huh. was in Nevada. Oh, I see. Okay. So. <laughs> yeah, you can tell I didn't watch it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I figured. Um, but I, I I have to add though, the worst bad beat of the year uh, is still my Knicks under bet. I've never been so pissed to get my money yeah. back. Yeah, the, there's a lot of brutal brutal uh, beats in the uh, uh, in the world, and of course, what makes it worse is uh, you want to complain as much as you would normally, right. but the circumstances surrounding the loss are so profound and grave that you really you don't even have any uh, leg to stand on to complain <laughs> compared to you know uh, the reality of the world. So that yeah. so you, you can't even vent properly because you you have no standing in in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, that's a good point. I need to like put you know write it on a little post-it note, vent about yeah. this later when when uh, when the dust clears and it feels appropriate yeah all right well thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 95 of gamble on uh one day later than usual uh we're posting this for reasons uh, i'll explain at the end of the pod but better late than never and we maintain our status as the Iron Men of Gambling Industry Podcasting. <laughs> if you missed any of our previous 94 episodes, they're all available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Please subscribe, rate, and write us a glowing review. Yeah, and, and Eric, coming up a little later on the show, we're going to be joined by William Pesquale III, an attorney and lobbyist who has worn many hats in and around the gambling business and was recently named president of the marketing agency A Game Above North America. Uh, we're going to talk to Bill about that new role and his views on problem gambling, the expansion of sports betting, and and much more. But first, it's been a eh, not that busy news week in the world of gambling, so let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. Let's open the news segment with a roundup of notable updates regarding reopenings. Last week, we talked about Vegas and Connecticut casinos welcoming customers. This week, we added a handful of properties in Pennsylvania to the list. Meadows Casino and Rivers Casino, both in the Pittsburgh area, reopened on Tuesday, and Lady Luck Nemecolon is set to open around the time of our recording on Friday morning. In counties in Pennsylvania that do not yet have a green designation from the governor, the casinos are still closed. Counterintuitively, casinos opened before horse racing tracks in Pennsylvania, although our own Gary Rothstein got word on Thursday that racing will resume as early as next Monday at some locations. Speaking of racing resuming, in neighboring New Jersey, Meadowlands Racetrack hosted its first races in three months last weekend, with betting handle right in line with a typical weekend, even though no fans were allowed in the stands. Remaining in New Jersey, Governor Murphy continues to hint at a July 4th weekend reopening of the Atlantic City casinos. And speaking of that 4th of July holiday weekend, that seems to be the target date for the three Detroit casinos, which are lagging behind many tribal casinos in Michigan that have reopened already. John, we are now well past the halfway point in terms of reopened casinos. We're nearing 600 of the 989 casinos allowing customers, and it's an almost dead-even split between commercial and tribal casinos that are currently open. Any stories stand out to you in terms of what's open at this point and what isn't? 
Well, yeah, I mean, the Pennsylvania powers that be reversed their bizarre patron-allowed indoor casinos, but no spectator-free outside horse races, only hours after we called them on it on (laughs) penbets.com. So without evidence, I want to claim a win on that (laughs) correlation. (laughs) Yeah, this weekend, there are 13 races and 10 horses in each uh, for two nights at the Meadowlands. Uh, So that's 260 slots. The Meadowlands got 777 entries for 260 slots. Thank you, Pennsylvania. you know, so that's next weekend. So right. uh, they're going to have two 18 race events then. Uh, so an extra 100 horses. Um, Pennsylvania horsemen should at least say you're welcome to the Garden State. But uh, I think the concerning point is that somebody in the administration in Pennsylvania um, was was told, here's what other states are doing, many other states are doing, including New York and, and New Jersey. And here's why it works and how it works. And there's a lot of details about how the horses have many handlers anyway. So adding races doesn't really add much to the manpower involved. It, it's a kind of an obvious thing. If anybody listens to it, but they just, they just didn't listen. And, um, uh, in New Jersey, there's a kind of rev- revolution going on. Uh, Asbury park, which is about as far, much of a, a liberal sort of, uh, aging hippie town as there is, um, they're going to resume indoor dining on Monday. Um, outdoor dining is going to be allowed in New Jersey starting on Monday. Uh, but they're just, just tired of waiting. They, they don't want to go broke. And it's the same kind of thing where there was a, a question last week about or this week about, well, why don't they open, say, today today on a Friday uh, rather than wait till Monday? There's a whole weekend of, of obviously, you know, revenue to be gained by limited uh, outdoor dining. Right. And it was just, well, it's going to be Monday. And it's just the and so in both states, you kind of have a a failure to communicate, failure to listen, really. And that's what's kind of concerning because, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot going on. We're both governors, they're administrations. I mean, it's really hard to keep track of everything. But um, at some point, somebody in each administration, the idea was explained to them why they needed some little uh, additional adjustment. And somebody just didn't listen. And that's kind of alarming from a governing standpoint. Yeah, I I personally have been perfectly content with a with takeout meals. Uh, I mm-hmm. don't I, I'm I'm not personally rushing back into even outdoor dining, yeah. but uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, it seems outdoor dining with the tables spaced out a little bit is a logical a logical step to get to. And you're right that it would probably make more sense to to do it when the weekend begins, not uh, not when the weekend ends. But um, yeah, it, it does it it isn't all making uh, making perfect sense the order in which things are are reopening. Um, the the thing that, uh, that that's standing out to me about all of these reopenings is that every time I read a story about casino reopenings where the reporter interviewed customers, mm-hmm. I find a quote that saddens me. Uh, there was one I shared last week from Howard Stutz's mm-hmm. article. This time it's one of Gary Rothstein's articles. He writes that a retiree from Pittsburgh, uh, Jim Burgess, uh, and if he's a retiree, I'm assuming he's in a somewhat at-risk demo, um, but he apparently yeah. thinks there's no health risk at all in going to the casino. And he said of the casino's precautions, uh, which include requiring masks and social distancing, quote, they're doing what they can. It's probably too much. Uh, man, that that gets me. A, a global pandemic has killed over 100,000 Americans, and it's nowhere close to finished. And some people still think social distancing is an overreaction. Uh, but, you know, my, my full respect to the casinos that are trying their best to do it as safely as possible. And importantly, to the workers in those casinos who are putting themselves at some degree of risk in order to pay the bills. And I, I hope the numbers we see in the weeks ahead indicate that the precautions are working.
Yeah, uh, ironically, we really are talking about gambling in the in the most <laughs> yes. profound sense. You know, this pandemic could have been so, like could have been so much worse. As bad as it is, it's horrendous. Could have been so much worse that there's no way, let's say, for any of these things to reopen. You know, for the rest of the year, let's say, and then countless small businesses would have gone under. They just would have had to go bankrupt. There's no way. There's no way to safely possibly save them. Or it could have been milder, and then you could have gotten them back sooner, and then very few small businesses would have gone under and that would have been easier. We got stuck right in the sweet spot where, you know, if you look at it from a small business owner's perspective, they're right on the edge. You know, their savings are gone. Their, their, you know, rainy day fund is gone. They're, they're, they're borrowing. They're, they're asking friends and family for money. They're, they're just barely going to make it. And now they maybe can open maybe safely and people can maybe visit maybe safely, but we're not sure. It's just weird to me because the, the, Either extreme could have been that. It could have been a lot less, and then it's not a big a deal. could have been a lot worse, and then there's no way to save any of these businesses. Instead, we're right at the edge where, as you say, we don't know for a few more weeks at least. It Was was it okay? Is it safe? I don't know. But uh, it's. I guess the idea is um, you know, everybody's got to make their own decision. Like, as you said, you know, just because it's open doesn't mean you have to go. Right. And, uh uh, you know, we just have to, you know, hope and pray for for those who are bolder uh, that it works out. Yeah, uh, I I personally would not have used the term sweet spot. I don't think there's anything too yeah. sweet about it, but I, I get what you meant by it in any case. Yeah. Um, but uh, all right, we could we could go further down the road of talking about how the pandemic could have been worse or better, but uh, that'll un- unspool in all different directions. We should uh, probably move along to our second story uh, this week, which concerns the state of Illinois, which legalized sports betting in 2019 and included mobile betting in the package. But in order to have a mobile betting account, customers needed to register in person at a casino. This is not an uncommon law. Nevada, for example, has the same rule. But it's a rule whose flaws become more pronounced during a pandemic. And Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker has decided to act, issuing an executive order last Thursday to allow sports bettors to register remotely. Now, it's a moot point at the moment, since online betting hasn't launched yet in Illinois, but that will likely change soon, as seven master sports betting licenses were issued at this Thursday's IGB meeting. Uh, Complicating matters. There seems to be some dispute over how long the executive order to allow mobile registration will remain in effect, and there's still some uncertainty about how soon DraftKings and FanDuel will be permitted to enter the market. Lots of moving parts here, but John, what do you think of all the maneuvering in Illinois, and do you think this could start a trend where other states will look to ditch their in-person registration requirements as long as the COVID spread continues to impact businesses? Uh, yeah, once again, Eric, you know, we're both Cassandra's on this issue, and I hope by this time subscribers don't still have to Google the Greek reference, but they can if they like. Um, look, allow sports betting or you don't in, in a state, that's fine. Allow mobile sports betting or you don't, I mean, okay, I guess that's fine. But forcing initial sign-up at an old-fashioned casino, which has far less stringent requirements than online registration does, um, is nonsensical. I mean, you do it one way or you don't. It's amazing that Nevada did this, and it's just weird. And then um, other states decided, oh, that's that's what I should follow. Uh, it's amazing. And, you know, it was foolish, obviously. And you look at the, you know, uh, gaming revenues for casinos in New Jersey versus New York, for instance, last month or two. Mm-hmm. Um, zero for New York versus <laughs> tens of millions for New Jersey. I think uh, tens of millions is better. Again, if you support legal 
uh, casino gambling. I mean, you don't, you don't. But if you support it, why, why wouldn't you want them to have revenue? New York casinos aren't getting any revenue yet, so uh, it's a strange situation. I'm not positive. <laughs> you know, the the foolishness of the legislatures to make this decision is so extreme that I'm not even sure if this wakes them up. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the in-person registration requirements are basically born out of, of two outdated notions. Uh, one, that that online gaming cannibalizes land-based gaming, so let's throw the land-based casinos a bone and force people onto the property at least once. Uh, and the other one is that it's easier to prevent underage gambling in person than online, sort of the uh, the Sheldon uh, Adelson fear-mongering tactic that, that little Johnny is going to steal his dad's credit card when, if you've ever signed up for an online gaming account with a legal regulated operator, you know that it isn't that easy. Um, but I, I think enough people have evolved and, and learned that online gaming supports the land-based casino, the New Jersey example being uh, being the prime one of that. Um, and, you know, the, the COVID situation has, has helped drive that home even more. In-person registration is increasingly nonsensical. Um, I don't know how many states, if any, will rush to change their existing laws like Illinois is. What I do think is, is that going forward, uh, you know, knowing what happened and is still happening with COVID, with new states, I, I would guess that the in-person requirement is on its way toward extinction. Although, you know, uh, sort of sort of along the lines of what you said, I guess uh, it's it's uh, always a good bet not to uh, overestimate the logic of the, uh, the the legislators and the laws they're passing. I think it's sometimes human nature to double down on stupid, so I'm not the optimist here. <laughs> All right. Uh, our, for our third uh, story this week, uh, let's talk about the World Series of Poker. There will be one this year. Sort of. Uh, originally, 87 live bracelet events were planned for the Rio in Las Vegas from May through July. Now, with the live WSOP postponed to the fall and quite possibly an underdog to happen at all, the World Series has announced 85 online bracelet events. There are 31 in the U.S., uh, one each day in the month of July, available to players in Nevada or New Jersey. And there will be 54 events available to players in other countries on the site GG Poker. Buy-ins range from $400 to $3,200 for the U.S. events, much cheaper on average than live WSOP tournaments. It should be noted that the variety of games available in person is not there online. This is pretty much all No Limit Hold'em and Pot Limit Omaha. While some are pleased by the news of these 85 tournaments, others in the community have spoken out, insisting this devalues the World Series of Poker bracelet. My personal take is that 2020 is turning out to be a year in which many things will have asterisks attached. People can go ahead and put an asterisk next to any online bracelet winner if they want, but this is a moment in time, and the story of poker in 2020 is that it's all online. So I'm cool with it, although I will admit that bracelets are a bit devalued by this. What do you think, John? Any issues with the WSOP putting this full online schedule together? And does this indicate anything to you one way or the other about their expectations of having a live WSOP in 2020? 
Uh, yeah, I think it suggests we're not going to have a live WSOP in 2020, and and maybe rightly so. But you know, World Series of Poker bracelets, you know, they may be the nearest thing to a player having your name the great in a Stanley Cup in hockey. You know, it's right. more than just a win. There's there's something special about that compared to other sports or competitions. So uh, then again, you know, I'm old enough to remember uh, 16 out of 21 teams would qualify for the NHL playoffs, and that century-old <laughs> tradition was not questioned by that. This is kind of the other extreme. Instead of you know everybody gets a chance that maybe they don't deserve to win here hardly anybody gets a chance you have to be in nevada new jersey and so if you're living in flyover country uh you there are limited flights uh, you know by that time so you, you can fly you may not want to you can drive you probably don't want to do that either so um it's going to limit the quality of the competition so uh, ultimately I, I would defer to poker's finest and several of them have been guests on our podcast of course you know uh as to how legitimate this is i would really love to hear from the top 10 or 20, you know, most legendary players and get kind of a consensus from them on what they think of it. Yeah, I've kind of heard both sides from uh, from some of them. I guess one notable one who I heard uh, on, on a podcast talking about it was our, our former guest, Daniel Negreanu, who is very much in favor of it, but he also is a sponsored pro with GG Poker. So I don't know that his uh, opinion uh, is entirely pure on this. Um I'll I'll stand by what I've been saying for months about the in-person WSOP. I don't think it's going to be possible this fall. Yeah, if you've yeah. ever been to the Rio during the WSOP, you know that it's the perfect place for a virus to spread. Just yeah. absurd overcrowding and people in close proximity to one another. But I think the WSOP can still have a main event. You do it online with a live final table, which ESPN can televise. You know, I'm, I'm thinking now, now that they've announced these, uh, the, the uh, U.S. version and the overseas version, maybe you have two tournaments going. One overseas on GG Poker, one in New Jersey and Nevada, and possibly Pennsylvania by the fall if WSOP.com launches there. Uh, but, you know, it's still that $10,000 buy-in, super slow structure like the real main event play down to a final five in the U.S. and a final five overseas, and then you get all 10 together in Vegas, test them, quarantine them, and play it out. There would be a lot of details to work out, uh, you know, like what if someone isn't allowed to travel to the U.S.? What if someone tests positive when they get to Vegas? You need to establish rules for blinding people off. But I think, you know, around September, if and when the WSOP accepts that a full in-person series is not safe in 2020, they should organize something like this and still have a main event this year with a big asterisk, of course. That all makes so much sense that it's no chance it will ever happen. <laughs> Ye of little faith. Uh, it, it, it is. It's so, it's so good that uh, I, um, I'm getting frustrated. I don't, I don't see sensible results, you know. Uh, right. But enough about Major League Baseball. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. We now welcome to the podcast a distinguished guest who's held a variety of influential positions in and around the gaming industry. The resume of William J. Pascrell III includes lobbyist with the Princeton Public Affairs Group, advisor to John Kerry's 2004 presidential campaign, and advisor to too many other prominent politicians to list, member of the National Council of Problem Gambling Federal Affairs Committee, 
founder, board member, and faculty of the Seton Hall University Law School's Gaming Compliance and Integrity Bootcamp, trustee for GVC Foundation US, along with Martin Leica and Amani Toomer, recent addition to the board of Gamban, a UK software tech responsible gambling company, and as of this month, president of A Game Above North America. Bill, thanks for joining us this week on Gamble On. Thank you for having me, Eric. I'm looking forward to it. So let's start with that latest addition to your roll call of credits. You are now president of A Game Above North America, which is described as a customer experience marketing agency. Can you explain what A Game Above's role in the North American gaming industry is and what attracted you to this opportunity? Yeah, sure, Eric. You know, it's a, it's a real honor and privilege to be on Gamble On. Uh, I'm really excited about this podcast and you've done a Herculean job at projecting it. So, so a game above uh, is an interesting story. I met uh, a gentleman by the name of Ishmael Valley, who is uh, one of the senior members of that organization. And uh, Ishmael and I were in Copenhagen two years ago at a uh, Aventus gambling summit where I was talking about U.S. sports betting. And uh, he said, uh, hey, Bill, let's try to do business together. I helped him get a job with Hard Rock Interactive. Uh, he did a tremendous job there. He actually moved to New Jersey, has been here for the past, uh, well, was here for a little over a year, uh, and then went back to uh, Scandinavia, uh, where he bumped into uh, Steen and Yakov, the, the COO and CEO of A Game Above. And what's really fun about this organization is they're already, uh, although a startup, they're already uh, doing significant business uh, in, in most of the globe, except for the U.S., and what they are is they're a customer experience uh, database company um, that, that, that tries to make um, marketing uh, a little bit more customer-centric to focus on the customer and what he would like. For example, uh, one of their most recent uh, ventures was providing a hard rock burger for anyone who sold up for X amount of dollars as a new customer or a current customer depositing X amount of money uh, into their fund. And Hard Rock had to shut it down because they couldn't keep up with the burgers. <laughs> mm. um, and, it, and it produced a significant amount of revenue for a very small spend. A Hard Rock burger goes anywhere from $22 to $25 around the globe. And, uh, you know, they, they sold a ton of burgers uh, as a comp because people like that kind of customer experience. Obviously, everybody wants to win money, but whether it's a T-shirt or a hotel room or a competition uh, that allows you to get to another event, that's what game, A Game Above is all about. It's, it's being innovative, and it's trying to focus on the customer experience. Gotcha. All right, you know, Bill, uh, you go back a decade with uh, New Jersey's efforts to legalize online casino gaming and, uh, and sports betting as well. And uh, you were kind of in the bull ring and I was in the front row. But, um, you know, I hadn't really thought about this exactly before. But, you know, in 2013, New Jersey gets uh, online casino gaming, and as does Delaware. And uh, it really states just didn't follow. You know, now Pennsylvania is all in and a handful of other states kind of are. But that's after seven years. Where sports betting, it's legalized in 2018 anywhere and almost half the states uh, have it already so i'm wondering you know being on the inside of both fronts you know why is it that states seem so reluctant to legalize online casino gaming yet they're so eager to legalize sports betting whether online or not online well yeah and you know john and, and I, john great great to be with you as well um there, there's a real uh, important issue particularly when you're talking to non-sophisticated 
punters, uh, unlike you and, and Eric, of course, there's a big <laughs> distinction between sports betting and retail and online. A lot of people confuse it. Online is casino, it's poker, it could be lottery, it could be horse racing, and it could be horse uh, sports betting. What, what you're finding, let's take an example of New York. Governor Cuomo uh, passed pretty, you know, relatively quickly, uh, not as quick as Jersey and other states, but he passed his enabling act for retail sports betting. But he had a council advising him that said, you need to amend the constitution to allow for online because it's a new type of gaming. John, you were there. You were front and center when we went through this debate. It's not new gaming. It's another way of delivering a game. It's not new gaming. And so we went through that experience. I've had recent conversations with the Cuomo administration. Don't want to get into names and details and all, because Governor Cuomo is the type of guy that'll take a baseball bat to my head. But <laughs> but he he has now has a new council in place that is kind of re-looking at the experience of looking at that constitution, whether we can go through it. Many people during the Christie administration had the same interpretation that we had to amend the constitution and, you know, uh, not patting myself on the back, but we worked hard to convince them, do it. If somebody brings a lawsuit, we're going to stand behind it. We think we can prevail. But what I think is starting to move the dial, and then I want to get back to your core question, is that during COVID, these last 90 plus days, rolling into more than 90 plus days, we have seen an experience of a trajectory that has not been seen globally in online gaming yet. And that's like a huge meteoric rise for online. And now Cuomo is saying, geez, Jersey's eating our lunch because our customers, whether they're applying with the COVID shutdown or not, are driving across the bridge or biking or walking and playing. And Philly customers are doing the same because the experience here is that much more robust and mature as Pennsylvania is still sorting out. But the core question you ask is, Bill, why has it been so slow and dodgy on online? And, and I believe we have a, a unique situation in Tennessee where we have online only. We have another unique situation like states like Mississippi and New York where we have sports betting retail, but no online. But I believe that COVID has been, in many ways, just a terrible experience for all of us, the way we socialize, the way we work, uh, the way we do everything. But it has had an ancillary benefit to the online industry because we are now talking to governors in red states who are interested in plugging their COVID budget deficits, you know. And, and so they're looking at opportunities not to raise taxes because Republicans don't like to do that, but to see if they can create other opportunities to generate revenue. And so I thought at the beginning of the year, John, we'd maybe see three more states come on. I think that number will double and could even eclipse more as legislatures come back into session. And as all these various forms of gambling expand, one thing that kind of needs to expand with it is attention to, to problem gambling. Um, some people find it surprising when a, a gaming lobbyist or any backer of a, a broader scope of legal gambling is not running far, far away from the topic of compulsive gambling. But, but here you are, uh, a member of the National Council of Problem Gambling Federal Affairs Committee. For those who might think these interests conflict, can you explain your eagerness to be involved in this, this undeniable downside to gambling, whether legal or illegal? Well, I, I, Eric, that's a great question. I appreciate it. Um, I'm enjoying this. My son 
my two sons and uh, my two older sons and my older daughter, I, I also have a five-year-old, a 20-year-old. They all said to me, dad, you're a gambling guy. What are you doing dealing with problem gambling? Like that's, so I would expect the general public to say, this guy's a fraud, right? Okay, get it. I like it. I like the challenge. Here's the point. I was asked to join the National Council of Problem Gambling's Government Affairs Board five years ago because we have a lot of interaction. And the issue becomes with problem gambling, companies that are typically looking to make a money grab, alcohol beverage companies, tobacco companies, cannabis companies, ultimately end up falling on their own petard because the regulators will catch up with them. So GVC coming online and saying, Bill, we want you to be involved in not only representing us for licensing and compliance and all, but to talk about social responsibility, integrity, compliance, and most importantly, responsible gambling. The issue is, and this is going to be talked about a lot in the next 60 days on conferences throughout the globe. What's happened in the UK, GVC was smart enough to be prophylactic ahead of the curve. What happened in the UK was, you know, it's very easy to put an online gaming company. It doesn't have to be linked to, uh, linked to a brick and mortar casino. So there's a proliferation of them and they're going at it in addition to the black market. The problem is the problem addictive gambler is being preyed on. Um, and we know all the uh, demographics that comply with that. GVC wants to prevent that from happening here while we're in the nascent form of this online gaming industry, merely six years old. That's all it is. And as it continues to percolate up, as we're dealing with COVID, we didn't know about COVID when we launched it in October. COVID wasn't even on our radar. But what what GVC is doing is they're putting real money, it's not a show, into the Harvard Medical School study, into the uh, partnership with Epic Risk Management Company to educate people on problem gambling. Why we brought Amani Toomer in. Because Amani and I, well, we were going to be doing it. We got to wait till things open back up. We're going to each of the 14 states that have sports betting. We're picking a university in each of those states. And Amani, myself, and Martin are going to go lecture to the student body and to the coaches and athletes on the vagaries of problem gambling and also match fixing. Hmm. Putting those of us uh, on the media side uh, under the microscope for a second, uh, as things have been expanding uh, gambling wise, have you and and as the media covering gambling has expanded, have you sensed that the media is covering the responsible gaming push more? Have have you gotten a feel that that the the media has latched on to the importance of uh, of talking about responsible uh, gaming at all in the past year or two? More so than normal. You you are certainly one of those that have been engaged and involved in it. Not as much as we would like, but we're starting to see it growing. And I think a lot of it has to do with the uniqueness of a corporate, a public entity like GVC. They're Mm -hmm. a corporate, publicly traded company that is the largest publicly traded gaming company in the world. And yet they're putting money down to address responsible gaming. And what I would say is the business reason for that. Let's say, no matter what I say about how socially responsible they are, I know I'll get a little, you know, a smirk or two. But but the business reason for it, and I like to call this, Eric and John, not responsible gaming, sustainable gaming. Hmm. This is how to sustain the industry so that we don't get regulators leapfrogging ahead of us. And I'll be quick here, but here's what we're doing. There's three pieces to the RG puzzle 
that we're going to be presenting. Or, or let me say three tools. There's preclusion lists. So you, you self-preclude and you get on a national list. There's um, software blocking, which Gambam is, and that's why I joined that organization. And then there's bank blocking. We are trying to educate the regulators to be ahead of the curve to institute all those. And by the way, much like I had with the casino-based companies who all fired me when I started to get into online gaming because they thought it was a risk or would, would uh, cannibalize their industry, now they're realizing it's the only industry. The, the <laughs> Atlantic City casinos would have died. The only yeah. revenue they had was online. Right. You know? so, so those pieces of the puzzle are important from a regulatory standpoint and to look consumer-friendly while also protecting the industry from eating up itself and getting regulatory overplay. Uh, you know, Bill, you're a, you're a world uh, traveler, or you were a world traveler <laughs> up until March um, uh, for many years. And so you've been in a lot of countries, especially, I think, in Europe. And, uh, you know, the, the attitude, the cultural attitude in almost every European country is, is far different here. And that's why it's been legal for many years. The mobile's been legal for many years. And the United States, there's a lot of things that uh, the U.S. culture is more resistant to in terms of vices than, than, than Europeans tend to be. So now that we've had a year or two for a lot of states to have sports betting, you know, do, do you feel like the American sports better is starting to become similar to a European sports better, or are they ever going to be that similar? Are they ever going to catch up? You guys are great. I love these questions. It's <laughs> almost like I scripted it. Um, so, so I have said this, John, you've heard me say this. American punters can't hold the candle to punters throughout the globe, particularly New Zealand, Hong Kong, Australia, and, and Europe. It can't hold a candle. But yet all of us, you know, uh, particularly males, you know, uh, feel like we know everything about sports. That's all we do. <laughs> we don't know a lot about the sports betting industry. And so one of the challenges is to educate and advocate to broaden the base, the more companies educate, the more ability they'll have to bring on clients for parlays and teasers and things like that. But what I am really interested in putting forward, when, and this is kind of a, a great opportunity, Governor Murphy has embraced this. We're going to be launching it soon. We would have launched it on May 2nd. A client of mine out of Australia, Betmakers, is going to be introducing for the first time in American mm -hmm. history. John, you heard a little bit about this at the Seton Hall Boot Camp. Mm -hmm is fixed odds horse racing. And when you say that to most people, not you two, but most casual observers, they don't know what you're talking about. What's fixed odds? What are you talking about? It's very simple. Parimutuel pull. You know, your bet goes in at $10 at 7-1. By the time the race ticks off, it's 2-1. to one. You're a pulled bet. That's what you're getting, $20, not 70 But in a fixed odd, you bet the day before, you bet an hour before, you bet 10 minutes before, it's fixed and it's there. And I'll end with this on this note. And this is why America's going to start to catch up, but has a long way to go in terms of the punter. America has 330 approximately million citizens. We do 10 billion a year in horse race bets, which are all power mutual. Australia has less than 25 million people. They do close to 31 billion Aussie dollars, which is about 21, 22 billion US dollars a year in horse racing. Why is that? Because when they introduced fixed odds about 12 years ago in Australia, their industry was dying. All the old cranky guys that John and I know, you know, that smoke cigars, have oxygen tanks and use canes to get into the Meadowlands, you know, that's the age group. They're aging out. Fixed odds is going to bring new folks into the industry. It'll help horse racing. 
and it will also help sports betting because we're going to be moving the horse better into sports and vice versa because a horse bet on fixed odds is just like a sports bet. Yeah, and last, last thing, Bill, uh, you know, we've talked in the podcast a few times this year about the fact that uh, the UK and Ireland in particular are fascinated with American politics and wagering on it, and they wager a lot on it. And uh, this, of course, this year is rather momentous by, by all accounts. And uh, so I, I've, I've talked to other guests about it, but um, you're the only one who has a father in the House of Representatives, so uh, Bill Pressfield Jr. So uh, uh, you're, you're, you're involved in state politics anyway, but obviously you know a lot personally about the uh, the national mood. Um, how about, what are the odds that um, an American in any state uh, can legally bet on the 2024 president's election, for instance? I think legal, this is a conversation, John, You may, I might have shared this with you uh, that I had with Governor Christie about six or seven years ago. And he said, William, I've done a lot here. I've, I've moved online. I've moved sports, exchange wagering. He's like, oh, you're not doing that under my watch. Every politician I've talked to in America to date, everyone has said, no way. Now, I just say to folks who want to do it, just give me a call when I'm over in London. And I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll be happy to uh, check out the bet for you. I can't place it though, right, John? <laughs> so, so I don't see it happening in the near future. But I will also tell you, a year ago, this July 4th, when I was in Barcelona speaking at the World Gaming Executive Summit, I get a phone call from the Nathan's hot dog eating contest folks who wanted to have that legalized uh, uh, for betting. And obviously the director Reebok appropriately said no, because there are no rules and regs and a, you know, a legitimate league in place, but we are betting on a host of other things. We're now betting on weather and virtual darts and virtual horse racing. So in time that may happen. And I will say this, the best way to regulate something, because you know, John, on the street, you can place a bet on whether Joe Biden has a prayer or not, right? You can do that on mm-hmm. the street. People will take that bet. Um, mm-hmm. But, but the, the, the issue becomes politicians were very loathsome to get into online because they didn't quite understand that the most valuable thing for a gaming entity is the license, Nobody's going to put their license at stake. When my grandmother, God rest her soul, was alive and used to go to AC twice a week, when she heard I was involved in online gaming, she's like, Billy, you're getting involved with those dodgy players? They're, just, they're fixing the, 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 the uh, gambling online. You think you play blackjack? They're really honest and honorable. And I said, Grandma, they are. And she goes, you're such a fool. Well, so that's been the challenge. <laughs> and it is age-specific. The older and we have a lot of older legislators, my dad being one, the older you are, the less inclined you are to support online. Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, all Americans love sports betting. They've been doing it for years illegally. And mm-hmm. the best way to crack down on the black market and the, the uh, money laundering and all is to legalize and regulate it. Interesting stuff. This has been a, a really fun conversation. I, I got to say, uh, Bill, this is my first time talking to you. Uh, I was not a p- prepared for the amount of uh, charisma that you were going to bring to the table. This was this was a real delight. Uh, so uh, thanks for so much for coming on the podcast. And of course, best of luck with a, with a game above. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, John. Have a great day. It was an honor to be here. All right. Thanks, BP3. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. We had a true break-even week with our bankroll. Two bets, 
One lost $50, one won $50. You put $50 on a soccer game, John, between FC Braga and Santa Clara. You were getting a little better than 3-1 to one on a tie. We came close, but no cigar. The final score was 3-2. Uh, then I put $95 on a minus 190 favorite in an Aussie rules football game. I took the Geelong Cats to beat the Hawthorne Hawks, and they did by a final yeah. score of 108-47, to 47, a blowout. So uh, so we won 50 bucks there. Um, also, we have a seriously disappointing futures bet to officially void. I mentioned this at the top of the show, but our outstanding bet of Knicks under 29 and a half wins, it was almost a lot to win, but the bet yeah. is voided as the Knicks season is over, no matter what else ends up happening with the NBA. Uh, so that's $220 back in our account. Uh, so add it all up, we are still up $189 overall. We have $770 on hold in futures bets. So we have $9,419 available to bet with this week. And you're up first, John. Uh, well, Eric, my soccer bet held, held up after 90 minutes. It was tied at 2-2. Uh, I, and I actually noticed, uh, I had made a quick and unfortunate glance at that. Uh, I kind of <laughs> remember that the game was even on um, on Friday, uh, only to be toppled only two minutes into overtime. Uh, <laughs> it's a bad beat there. Um, yeah. You know, I now I've not tried a PGA Tour mid-round bet before, um, but I like my maiden voyage and um, putting my five PGA Tour uh, winning streak on the line here. Um, you know, Phenom and temporary ATM pick Colin Morikawa's birdie putt on his final hole on Thursday at the Colonial event in Fort Worth, Texas, it lipped out, costing him a share of the first-round lead. But um, I like it because. Um, I'm going to I think I'm going to cash on this methodical player at 100 to win 138 from mere top 10. I don't really want to bet on him to win anywhere just yet. He has won once already, um, but he'll be in the mix on the back nine on Sunday. OK, I like that. And by the way, I'll mention uh, I be, because I had like a uh, there was a promo where I had to make a, a $10 golf bet to cash in on something else. Uh, I went ahead uh, before the tournament started and put $10 on uh, Justin Thomas for the top 10. So mm-hmm. I'm feeling I'm feeling nice. good about that right now. Yeah. Yeah. He has <laughs> never played that course before. And he, he does miss cuts. But uh, the fact that he played so well in the first round, he's only one shot off the lead. Uh, that looks pretty good. He, he's just he's that great. All right. Uh, as for my bet, we have some Friday night boxing in Poland, a middling heavyweight against a formerly middling heavyweight who is now a terrible heavyweight. It's uh, Marius Vok, uh, a big favorite over Kevin Johnson. No sense betting on Vok to win at lopsided odds, but I do like betting on the fight to go the full 10 round distance at a price of minus 188. Uh, Vok is not a big puncher. He stands like six foot nine, but he has so-so power. And Johnson, for all his faults, has always been durable. I do have some concern about Johnson showing up out of shape as a result of the lockdown, but I still think it's a good price. So let's bet $188 to win 100 on this fight going 10 rounds. Okay. Okay, that will do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, William Pascrell III. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan. And follow U.S. Bets at U.S. underscore Bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And this is the point in the show at which I normally hand it over to John to offer some words of wisdom and take us out. But I'm going to steal that duty from John this week, and I have a good reason. My father, Ray Raskin, died last Thursday night at the age of 77. That's why this episode of the podcast is posting one day later than usual. I took some time off until returning to work late in the week. There are two things I'd like to say about my dad's passing. The first isn't really about him. It's about COVID-19. 
Uh, he had a stroke in 2017 and had lived in what's called a skilled nursing facility ever since, and that's where he contracted COVID. We're fairly certain, however, that COVID isn't what killed him. Uh, it was really complications from his Parkinson's, and it was perhaps incidental that he tested positive for COVID a few days before he died. Although, if not for the Parkinson's, perhaps COVID would have killed him soon. That part is immaterial. What matters is that COVID got into the facility where he lived. Uh, a worker tested positive several weeks back, and it began to spread so please wear a mask when you go out be responsible don't be an idiot partying at a crowded bar because you just don't know if the person that you get a droplet of saliva on is a healthcare worker somewhere and you're introducing this virus to a whole group of people who can't escape it and can't fight it take this disease seriously wherever you live now a few words about my dad and making it relevant to this podcast my dad was very much not a gambling man uh, he came from virtually nothing, had enormous respect for the value of a dollar. Uh, my three brothers and I all eulogized him over the weekend, and we all told stories of creative coupon usage and bargain hunting. Uh, and my dad paid for 16 years of his kids' college educations in part by being smart with his money. So my dad was not a sports better or a poker player or a slots player or anything like that, but he was a great card player. He played bridge, and he was a platinum life master, uh, a well-known name in the bridge community. When I met 1978 World Series of Poker champion Bobby Baldwin about 15 years ago, knowing that Bobby was a bridge player also, I mentioned my dad to him, and he knew exactly who my dad was, said he remembered playing with him, even though it had been a while. Uh, I never learned to play bridge, uh, but I have been consistently a winning low-stakes poker player over the last 15 years, so maybe I inherited some card sense from my dad, uh, and he certainly provided me with much, much more than that. So I want to dedicate this episode of the podcast to him and his memory, and even though Ray Raskin was not a gambler, that doesn't mean the rest of us can't be. Uh, but in his honor, at least be smart and responsible about it and look for a bargain if you can. And until next time, gamble on. Gamble on.